Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different turkey drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 196. Today on our show, Andy Crossley from the popular blog Fun While It Lasted. Fun While It Lasted is all about what Andy described as the lunatic fringe of the pro sports industry with tales of hustlers, marks, grand illusions, and shoestring budgets, guerrilla marketing, and Ponzi schemes of humble beginnings and of even humbler endings. The site is filled with stories of hundreds of dispunct. The site is filled with stories of hundreds of defunct pro sports teams and a variety of sports leagues. And of course, you know, Cincy Shirts, we kind of deal in that kind of thing as well, what with the Stingers and the Swords and the Silverbacks and all those. And he joins us to discuss minor league baseball, world team tennis, the feasibility of spring football, how defunct leagues and teams of the past have shaped the sports landscape of today, plus a whole lot more. Now, I should issue this disclaimer. I don't know if I need to or not, but I will let you know that Andy and Fun While Lasted are affiliates of OldSchoolShirts.com, meaning if you go to Andy's site, he has images of our shirts there. You click on that. He gets a little juice when we sell the shirt, so I thought I'd let you know that. So now uh, I can also tell you, by the way, if you've been liking the podcast, please help support it via PayPal or Venmo by simply using podcast at CincyShirts.com and chipping in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off to the end of the episode. And now let's talk to Andy Crossley about defunct teams and leagues. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. She came down from Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. Yeah. I refreshed myself on a few of my Cincinnati places good, the best good, I yeah. could before before cool. coming on. And cool. I used to have a girlfriend in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. Oh, nice. Which I would so the few times that few times the small amount of time I've ever spent in Cincinnati was visiting her in the nineties. And this is my ignorant uh, Bostonian view of of Fort Mitchell, so you you could tell me better, but Fort Mitchell always struck me as the East Rutherford, New Jersey of Cincinnati. You know, um, I don't know what Northern Kentucky is all one big blur to me coming from Ohio, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, Northern Kentucky yeah. is very nice. It's the, we call it the Southern side of Cincinnati, and it's very suburban. It is kind of its own feel, though. Unlike well, I used to live in Cleveland, you know, we'd East Side, West Side, and in Cincinnati we have East Side, West Side. But then you kind of have that little. A little oddball down there in northern Kentucky is just a little bit different. And same thing in Pittsburgh, North Hill, South Hills we had. But, uh, yeah, it's a nice little uh, little twist in the area it, you get northern Kentucky. My daughter went to northern Kentucky University right across the river. So um, northern Kentucky is very nice. In fact, both of our owners uh, live there. Okay, cool. Yeah, they're from Cincinnati. Well, Josh is from Cincinnati originally, St. Bernard particularly. He'd want you to know that. And uh, our other boss, Darren, is from 
uh, near Canton, Ohio, and he moved down here to go to art school, and now he lives in northern Kentucky. So I was going to ask you, but you answered my question. You're from Boston originally? Uh, yeah, I grew up in the city, and uh, I live about halfway between Boston and Providence now, not far from Gillette Stadium. All right. So how does a how does a kid from Boston get mixed up in defunct sports teams? Partly, uh, partly by working for them. Oh, <laughs> I, wow. I, I worked in pro sports front offices for 11 years in pro soccer and minor league baseball. And um, I also just think I, I always had a fascination with with minor leagues and things like that. I think I think probably going all the way back to uh, when I was 12 years old and Bull Durham came out and I and I persuaded my parents to take me to see that. And I think that's just an age where like, you know, certain pop culture things just sort of imprint themselves on you. You have a very malleable brain and, um, you know, something about that movie just did it for me and gave me like kind of like lifelong fascination with the more of the outer fringe of the sports world. Funny. So Funny you I worked say that. there and now I kind of uh, document it. Funny you should say that because as we're on that same age, I got involved. Well, I didn't know I was involved. My favorite uh, hockey team, I guess my favorite sports team when I was a kid was the Cleveland Crusaders and the Cleveland Cavaliers because they both won. Now, the Cavs were in the NBA, Major League, the Crusaders in the WHA. I didn't know the WHA was this rebel league until years later I kind of put things together. But it was right around that same age. And then I remember also I used to collect football and baseball cards as a kid. And I remember looking at Paul Warfield's football card, and I'm looking at it. It's Miami NFL Memphis, WFL, 74, 75, Memphis, WFL. And I asked my dad, I'm like, WFL, what in the world is that? And he's like, oh, there was another football league for a couple of years, uh, a couple of years ago, and it went out of business. And Paul Warfield's back with the Cleveland Browns. Like, another football league? i got to find out more about this. And that, that started the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was your f- first foray, besides Bull Durham, uh, where did you go from there? Did you, did you start kind of exploring minor leagues, or did you realize there were other, like, pro leagues that were competing with the established leagues? Yeah. So, so, you know, I was born in 1975. So like my introduction to a lot of these more unusual teams and leagues came through the family getting cable television. Uh Aha. And, you know, as that sort of to proliferate in the eighties and, you know, back then ESPN was not the worldwide leader. ESPN (laughs) had, no, you know, they were desperate for content and they were showing whatever they could get. So indoor soccer and football and uh, uh, Australian rules football and all these crazy little sports. And so, you know, if you saw something like that and you got taken with it or fascinated or curious about it, um, you really had to do like detective work to to learn about it. I was going to say. And um, one of the sports that really made an impression on me was um, used to show indoor soccer games on uh, Take Delay. Big fan. You mentioned, I mean, you mentioned being from... uh, from Cleveland, and yes. it sounds like maybe in the era when the Richfield Coliseum yes. was built, yep, yep. and they had the greatest indoor, most popular team in the country. They're the Cleveland Force. You know, they used to draw bigger crowds than the Cleveland Cavaliers did in the early 1980s in that building. That's a fact. Um, well, there was nothing like that in Boston. It was, New England was like the one part of the country that indoor soccer really never came to. Yeah, and that's so, true. Yeah. Yeah, so Boston never had a team, for example. Hartford did. Any, yeah, Hartford. It's about as close as it got, yeah. briefly. So, you know, I used to go look for this magazine called Soccer Digest. And it was made by the same guys that did Baseball Digest and Football Digest. Yep. And um, My uncle was a subscriber. 
Yeah, there's literally two newsstands in all of Boston that carried it that I ever found. One was this great old newsstand in the heart of Harvard Square called Out of Town News. And the other was like this old school corner store in my town. And they would get like one or two copies of it. And it would be like in the <laughs> down in the corner next to the like um, biker magazines and <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, and it only came out every two months and I would like ride my bike up there and pick up a copy and, and learn everything that happened two months ago in, in, in indoor soccer. You know, I, I think, you know, so there's a bunch of sports like that that kind of caught my attention, but I also think like the detective work of it and like the research that you actually had to do to find out about things like that also can kind of become its own sort of like compelling habit for a kid. It feels like you've got a secret that other people don't have. Just like knowing about like a cool record store that your friends don't know about is yeah. like a kind of like cultural currency, you know? So that was part of it. And when it came time for me to go to college, my dad and I, in 19, summer of 1992, we drove from Atlanta to Boston. I'm sorry, from, from Boston to Atlanta. And every other day we'd visit a college and every other day we'd go to a ball game. And that was the summer that Camden Yards opened. Um, so we stopped in Baltimore and saw a game there. We stopped in Durham, North Carolina and saw the Durham Bulls. Uh, ultimately, I decided to go to college in Atlanta entirely because the Olympics were going to be there while I was there. And I ended up working in the Olympics for the Russian Olympic team in 96 when I was down there. I was a Russian major in school. And then um, oh, wow. when I came out, I I just uh, looked, you know, I, I, I worked in downtown Boston for a couple of years and was miserable in like an office environment. And then I quit and just went looking for like any minor league sports job I could get and ended up doing that for the next decade plus. So wait, do you speak Russian? Not anymore. Oh, okay. But was <laughs> there a time you could... In hockey, the one sport where it probably would have helped me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But was there a time when you could understand? Were you like a Russian studies major or a Russian language major? A language, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I spent, you know, I did a couple trips abroad over there in the 90s when they were just transitioning from communism to capitalism and it was wild but you've forgotten it all i got almost nothing left yeah wow that's crazy yeah we had a couple guys on the shirts podcast they were uh from the cincinnati mohawk american hockey league team from the 50s or so we thought turns out they were junior mohawks which was fine because they were still close to the organization and they had worked one of them had worked with every single minor league hockey team in the city up to the mighty ducks so wow. it turns out he was still pretty knowledgeable. Yeah, for a moment we were worried. We were like, wait a minute, we were promised actual Mohawks. But no, they were great guys. And the one guy that had worked for all the different teams worked for the Stingers when the Russians were in the WHA for mm -hmm. that one season. And they came here and he told this great story about how the, uh, the one thing you could remember was the smell. The Russians apparently don't wash their uniforms, thinking it's bad luck. So they spent the whole season in the WHA without washing their uniforms. But, um, but I digress. So what team did you work for first? Uh, let's see. I worked for uh, an independent minor league baseball team in New Hampshire called the Nashua Pride that had a lot of former major leaguers playing there. In fact, the first game I ever worked in my life was in 2001, our home opener. We were playing a team called the Newark Bears. I remember and that. they had decided to put together like an independent baseball like super group that year. And they had signed um, Jose Canseco. Um, who had just been let go from the Yankees. He played in the World Series six months er earlier with the Yankees, and it was his first minor league baseball game in 15 years. Um, and they had Jack Armstrong, the former Reds great pitcher from the 1990 World Series Reds, was on that team, and uh, Jim Leyritz from the Yankees. And I was the PR director, so my job was to 
normally to do, um, you know, quote unquote press credentials for the two guys who covered the team every night. But on this game, we had 85 press credentials. We had three satellite trucks from Boston. We had New York Times was there. CNN was there because Canseco was was big then. This was before he wrote Juiced. There was still a good shot that he'd get back to the major leagues, and he did get back that later that year. And he was trying to get 500 home runs, which was sort of the automatic entry to the Hall of Fame. So it was big news that he was playing in this Depression-era 4,000-seat <laughs> ballpark. And uh, so I worked, I worked in that league, the Atlantic League, for a few years. I was the general manager of a team in um, Brockton, Massachusetts, called the Brockton Rocks for wow. a few years. And then I was the general manager of the women's professional soccer team in Boston, the Boston Breakers, for a number of years. And, and actually, it was my last year with the Breakers in 2011 when it was very clear that the league they played in was going to fold, that I started the website. Okay. Um, so so you- I was very, very aware of the mortality of my own team. I decided to write about the mortality of hundreds of other teams. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So did you have to take a pay cut to go to Nashville, I reckon, from your office job in Boston to... <laughs> Uh, there was actually, now that I think about it, there was a, one job in between. I, I worked for another minor league, soc- second division minor league soccer team the year before. And that was a case where I had I'd quit my job as basically like a an office manager in a legal firm in Boston. Office manager is probably overstating it. If you remember the show Just Shoot Me, the sitcom Just Shoot Me from yes, the 90s, yes, I was yes. basically the David Spade character. <laughs> Um, the, the errand boy who ran around like filling the fish tanks and stuff for the, the quirky president making snarky comments and uh, yeah but it had good benefits and good yeah. you know good salary and all that stuff and but i didn't like it so I, I i quit that job and i took an unpaid internship with a minor league soccer team and i then i worked as a temp a few days a week coding medical records in a hospital started a make ends meet until the soccer team offered me a full-time job. Okay. And that, that's pretty typical. You know, it's uh, people who work for minor league teams are, are generally people who are privileged enough that they can afford to sort of go the internship route and work for nothing for, you know, a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's the way most people sort of build trust in that industry is sort of, you know, stacking up unpaid internships on top of each other until somebody finally hires them. So that kind of makes you a known property and a reliable property, I guess. Yeah. It's sort of like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, late, later when I became like a hiring person and I hired a lot of people into first jobs in the sports industry, you, you know, you do become sort of biased towards people who've done internships because the job has been deglamorized for them. You know, yeah. they've spent the summer pulling tarp or, you know, restocking toiletries in a clubhouse or working in a concession stand and they've come back to do it again. And you're like, okay, like I, I, we have a common language. Like you understand that this is more of like a sales business than it is like you get to meet such and such athlete. That, that is a big part of it. I think there's a lot of people who sort of only trust hiring people who've done internships for that reason. Because we, we'd also get a lot of people who were sort of like, had a lot of candidates who are like the 40-year-old guy who was like, you know, I've been selling insurance for 20 years and I've decided it's finally time to pursue my passion. And they'd have a lot more like real skills, you know, they'd have sales skills and they'd have experience, but it was often hard to trust that after three months of doing the kind of real dirty work of, of working in a minor league team, that they weren't going to come into the office and be like, I've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> I can't, 
I, I thought my commissions were going to be higher. I thought I'd see my kids more often. I didn't realize it was going to be 70 hours a week. And, you know, it was always hard to hard to hire that kind of candidate because the passion was real, but you weren't sure that the reality check had occurred, you know? Was there always a thought in the back of your mind, too, that this could end at any moment given the nature of minor league teams and rebel leagues and operations like that? Or do you not put that, uh, you put that out of your mind? certainly should have been. <laughs> uh, and I, that was definitely a very present thought when I worked for the uh, Boston Breakers and women's professional soccer, because I mean, at that point also I had a direct line to the owner. And so I knew on a day-to-day basis what his, his mindset was. Whereas when I was younger, I had to have, I would have bosses who would shield me from that. Mm. <laughs> so I probably, there's probably some close calls I wasn't aware of, but you know, I remember one instance uh, the, going into the last year um, that I worked for the breakers where I, basically I was told by our owner that we had a, our, our highest paid player who was the second highest paid player in the league and had a guaranteed three-year contract that if I couldn't get her and her agent to cut the contract by 40% that uh, the team would fold. So, you know, that was sort of a high stakes negotiation where I had no leverage uh, that, wow. <laughs> um, other, other than threatening that other than sort of threatening this player that, you know, if she didn't reduce her contract, all of her teammates would be out of work as well, which is a terrible negotiating tactic to have to take, but we really had no choice. So, you know, there, at that point, you're certainly very aware that your existence is day to day. And I do, I remember another day signing a player from the U S women's national team, uh, Leslie Osborne to come play for our team. And on the day that I signed her contract, we had $68 in the bank, in the checking account. Oh my God. The team. <laughs> So a far cry, you know, from FC Cincinnati. Sure. Wow. It's funny because I'm reading the Gary Webster book right now about the Cleveland Barons, which is a very fine book. And we're going to have a review of it on the Old School Shirts blog soon. I'm about three-fourths of the way through it. Similar thing happened there. And this is a NHL team where they went. I didn't even realize this. In February of the first season in Cleveland, they went to the guys and said, we have to cut like half of you right now and get rid of a lot of minor leaguers. And a lot, half the team was like, well, that's great. I'm a free agent. I'll just go somewhere else. And the other half of the guys were like, I probably won't get another job. So the guys that right. could have been free agents said, well, we'll bite the bullet and we'll take pay cuts and, you know, let some of the other guys go. And, you know, yeah, it's, boy, it's, just, it's crazy. And I remember um, another thing, too, speaking of hockey, I think the only job I ever applied for like that was with the Cleveland Lumberjacks. I think I applied for to be in their PR department or something. I didn't get the job. But uh, uh, the reason I probably didn't do that is because knowing the history of all these things is like, you know, these things don't last very long. Now, the Fort Wayne Comets have been in business forever, and the Cincinnati Cyclones have been in business forever. But that that's really an exception to the rule for the most part, I would say. For sure. I mean, yeah. it's interesting. I don't know if you have a district like this in Cincinnati, but we have a theater district in Boston. Uh, we do in Cleveland oh. called Playhouse Square, and we have uh, two theaters in town, but they're a couple of blocks from each other. Okay. So ours is just called the Theater District. Okay. And, and um, one of the theaters there is called the Charles Playhouse, and it is very small, and it's had the same show for probably a quarter of a century, which is Blue Man Group. It's had Blue Man Group oh. on an uninterrupted run for 25 years. I saw it when I was in college, and it's still there. And it's interesting because – you don't see a lot of like wealthy people come to a city and say, um, I want to bring you a, an arts theater and I want you to finance it with taxpayer finance money, <laughs> but they do it with stadiums all the time. Yeah. The, 
and often what this, this the selling point is, and I don't just mean like major league cities. It happens in little city, little hundred thousand person cities all over the country, yep. um, including Brockton, where I worked, which had a new eighteen million dollar stadium for our baseball team. The pitch is often like, you know, I want a twenty year lease, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you a team in this league that you've probably never heard of, hockey or baseball or whatever. And the interesting thing is, you know, people compare those teams to major league teams in their mind. They're like, we're going to have our own baseball team. We'll be a real town. You know, we'll have our own hockey team. But probably the better comparison is to a theatrical show. It's going to come to town. If it's done well, it's going to be a hot ticket for a year or two. But there's not a whole lot of Charles Playhouses around the country that can do the same show for 25 years and sell out. So that's what the case with a lot of these minor league teams, you know, arena football or indoor soccer, or all the things that have come through Cincinnati Gardens or the Riverfront Coliseum over the years is like there's a big curiosity factor. But once people have seen arena football once or twice, they're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so so often what the sales pitch is for these stadiums is is I'm going to bring you this thing for 10 or 20 years, but people are only going to want to see it a few times and unless it's done really, really, really well and all the market conditions and a lot of luck kind of like flip, go your way. And, and even when you look at the way people promote it, you know, minor league hockey and baseball, especially baseball, people are very eager to tell you how much the winning doesn't matter. They're like, you know, um, our, our surveys tell us our fans don't even like baseball. You know, they're, they they just want a good night of affordable family entertainment with cheap beer, cheap hot dogs, and a you know, mascot and that kind of thing. Well, what they're describing to you is a theatrical experience. Yeah. <laughs> so they're kind of telling you, we're not going to try and build like multi-generational loyalty to the wins and losses of this baseball team. They're telling you, we're going to try and make people excited about their kid got an autograph from the mascot and there was a fireworks show afterwards. Again, that's really a theatrical experience. So they just, it gets really hard to keep that fresh after a couple of years. And so even some of the best operated teams, you have teams like the Cleveland Barons that are sort of infamously sort of like disastrous, right? But then you also have other teams that are just done really, really well. And then they just kind of run their course. Yeah. For every Hershey Bears out there, there's a Columbus Checkers <laughs> and, and probably a dozen Columbus Checkers, you know, sure. and you would think on paper, oh, the Columbus team should be fine. It's a big city. There's, you know, a million people. We'll go. It'll take a long time to go through those million people. We'll get more people in. But Hershey, you would think, how's that going to last? That's a small town. And here they've lasted since, what, 1932, three, something like that. Um, so getting to the website, you start the website. What's the? Do you have any notion of what it's going to become? Is it going to be this big catalog of all defunct teams? Do you want to concentrate on a few sports to begin with? How does it all get started? I think when I, when I first started writing it, I just, like I said, I was – I had – gotten into pro sports because it was such a childhood passion and I had gotten to a point of just nonstop bean counting. All I was doing every day was trying to figure out how to pay vendors and meet payroll and keep the lights on and things like that. And the, the fun was sort of gone. <laughs> so part of it was just a desire for like a creative outlet to, to like re-explore, you know, the things that that had made me passionate about sports in the first place. So initially it was sort of a combination of like first person essay writing about adventures in sports combined with some sort of like third person, more journalistic writing about some particularly outlandish defunct teams and their stories. But over time, you know, it's been 10 years now as I got further and further away from working in the industry, like 
really writing from firsthand experience wasn't going to be sustainable. Um, so I moved it more into sort of becoming a little bit more encyclopedic in nature and more, more based on interviews with other folks rather than my own experience. It's been nice. You know, I think, I think I, you know, I'd been writing it for about a year and um, the owner of the LA Lakers, uh, Jerry Buss passed away. And it wasn't clear to me that anybody was reading anything that I wrote. And then I noticed that his obituary in the New York Times had linked to the website because we had, had written about wow. his first investment in pro sports, the Los Angeles strings of world team tennis. Yes. <laughs> and I guess no one else had written about world team tennis on the internet in 2011. So, you know, it got, we went sort of from being totally anonymous to being a source for the New York Times obituary section. I was like, all right, I should probably keep at this. I'm glad you did because I was a big fan of the site long before I got this job because it's really the only resource that gets all of the leagues together. I mean, there's a World Football League page out there that a guy was running a long time for GeoCities, and there's a couple other pages out there, but yours is kind of the only one that's all-encompassing as far as you know all of the different leagues, major, minor, rebel, whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about it. Like, most of these teams fail. I mean, they're, they're almost by definition, they've failed. <laughs> they've yeah. gone out of business, they've moved, they've run their course. Um, and some of them really failed spectacularly. Um, we've got a few teams on the site that only played one game um, before going out of business. Yeah. But then, you know, there's other teams, like we talked a little bit earlier about the Cleveland Force soccer team that was around for about a, a decade. You know, there's lots of people in Ohio who remember that team really, really fondly um, from their childhood. Yep. And if you take sort of collectively their fan base in the 80s, you know, millions of people went to those games. You know, for some of these teams, it really is like a sort of they did make a cultural impact. And, you know, some of those sports, for example, like indoor soccer in the 80s, those sports, as as forgotten as they may be today, they are the reason that the way the major league sports that we enjoy today look the way that they do. You know, if you went to a Boston Celtics game or a Cleveland Cavaliers game in 1984, there was not going to be indoor pyrotechnics, laser shows, mascots with choreographed dance routines. The major leagues thought they were above that. They didn't have to do those sort of circus antics. And then it was really it was really sort of entrepreneurial fringe sports like indoor soccer and arena football and box lacrosse and minor league baseball that actually showed how many tickets you could sell and how many sponsorships you can develop with that kind of in-game entertainment. And now it's, you know, indispensable and it's multi-million dollar investment for every major league team. And that stuff all percolated up from these leagues. Um, so the sports, even if you've never been to something, a minor league game in your life, the way you experience the major leagues today would never be would never be what you think it is without these without these teams and leagues. I never really thought of that because one of the things I remember about the Force is, of course, they had Darth Vader come out. They got in a little trouble. They talked to Lucasfilms, yeah. got that all ironed out. And then, yeah, they did that for years and years. And like you said, in a city like Cleveland, for example, where I'm from, a winning Cavaliers team maybe gets 15,000 people into the Coliseum, but they could actually push over the cliff to a sellout. You, you know, you do some added bonuses, cheerleaders, things like that, and get all that other stuff going, you get that extra 4000 in the door to sell out the facility. And yeah, I never really thought about it that way. And even with the Reds now, we've got the Kiss Cam at baseball games. You've got the, the races they do on the screen between Mr. Red and Mrs. Red and all the other 
mascots yep. and yeah all that stuff moved up from yeah. the minor you wouldn't at bat music you know think about how much cultural energy we put into dissecting major league players walk-up music yeah you know, all of that started in the minors. No one was doing that in Major League Baseball in 1996, but they were doing it in Durham, North Carolina and St. Paul, Minnesota and, and all these places that had great minor league teams. Yeah. And one of my heroes, John Bassett uh, with the Tampa Bay Bandits, the million dollar giveaway and the pay off your mortgage. And he got he got butts in the seats. And of course, he was putting good product on the field, too, which helped. So, yep. yeah. So what would be your favorite either minor league or minor league team or your, your area of concentration, if you have one. That's tough. You know, I'll always have a soft spot for the Durham Bulls um, because of the movie Bull Durham. And, and I'll tell you, a couple years after I started the site, I interviewed Miles Wolf, who owned the Durham Bulls when, when the movie was made. And, and I knew Miles already because he had been the commissioner of the league that the Brockton Rocks played in when I was the general manager there. And actually, his son writes for my site um, occasionally. But I got to interview him, and I've always been fascinated about the fact that Dur- Bull Durham launched or, or helped to launch, along with a sort of stadium building boom, this this explosive growth of minor league baseball in the 1980s and 90s. Because there's a very similar movie that came out a decade earlier in minor league hockey called Slapshot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Women that had... <laughs> The complete opposite effect, or zero effect. And um, I, I have to ask you before I tell the story, PF. Can I swear on your podcast? I'll just <laughs> bleep not? you, but go right ahead. It's a family so show. So I'll try and I'll try and keep it. Yeah, yeah, no, you're fine. One, one word. But the <laughs> thing that always fascinated me about Bull Durham is why the owners let them do it. Um, why the owners let the producers use their team name? Oh, because okay. um, Durham's in North Carolina. You know, it's a southern state. And the, the movie is just full of like sex and profanity and, and, you know, it's R rated movie. I really had to work to get my parents to take me to see it when I was 12. And no, most notably, there is a scene in the middle of the movie where Kevin Costner gets into a rip roaring argument with the umpire um, and finally calls him and gets thrown out of the, the game. And, and that word gets sort of tossed or screamed and yelled and tossed around back and forth over and over again. And so when I finally got to interview Miles Wolf about 25 years after the movie came out, I said, why did you think this was a good idea to like put your Southern minor league family entertainment's brand name on this script? And his answer was, I honestly never thought it would see the light of day. And, and it was in part of it was his sort of minor league frugal mentality is there's a there's a scene in the movie where they're on a bus trip and tim robbins is strumming a guitar and warbling a song off key and it's probably lasts for all of 30 seconds and he says i remember being on set when they were filming that scene and um whether it was tim robbins or one of the producers was insistent that they had to have a different guitar that was going to cost two thousand (laughs) dollars And he said, I just thought these people were maniacs, you know, that were like running around looking for this needlessly expensive prop in this small scene in the movie. And he said, I just didn't think it was going to go anywhere. It became like an iconic movie and it, inspired, it brought a lot of money into the game in its own way. But people seem to completely overlook like there's it had such a charm about it that, that nobody took the profanity <laughs> or the sex particularly personally. Whereas if you look at a movie like Slapshot, the profanity in that is extremely barbed. Like that same 
that same word, which would have been like unutterable in a Hollywood movie until the end of the 1960s, you know, is used in Slapshot, but it's directed from the hero of the movie, Paul Newman, to the owner of the team's young son, who's probably about nine or 10 years old. I mean, it's just an incredibly like harsh scene, but played for comedy. And, you know, those players are sort of in Slapshot are like anti-heroes to the 10th degree. And the thing that's interesting is now that was a team that wasn't based, uh, sorry, it was based on a real team called the Johnstown Jets from Pennsylvania, who had been around for ages, since the 1950s at least. But they did not use the real team names in Slapshot the way they did in Bull Durham. You know, the the team that Paul Newman played for is called the Charlestown Chiefs, um, which was invented. The year that Slapshot came out, the Johnstown Jets actually went out of business a couple months later <laughs> after the movie came out. So it had that complete opposite experience that Durham Bulls did. So it's just, it's, you know, I, I think Durham's Durham to me is always a f- sort of fascinating story. And also probably one that you can talk, talk to people who aren't even sports fans of, but if they're, you know, in their forties or fifties, they'll, they'll know that movie and they'll engage with you on it. So how do you come up with, well, not come up with, but how do you decide what to add to the site on a, and, and how often does the site get added to? Cause you know, we've just had a couple of leagues, football leagues go out of business recently. That's a good dozen teams to write about. Uh, so I guess there's like an endless supply of these things, but how do you kind of perform triage and figure out which ones should be going on the f- site in what order? Or is it just the most interesting story makes it first? Yeah, it's kind of whatever strikes my fancy. But the biggest thing is, and this is what makes some of the more recent sort of demises harder to, to add, is that um, usually I try and link it to a great image. So if I can find like a, you know, if somebody sends me an old souvenir program, you know, from the 60s or 70s that has great artwork or that has really hideous artwork um, or that, you know, but, but that there's a really good visual to put on it, then I'll try and find the story. So I usually start with whatever's going to look interesting. And especially, you know, if it's a team where there's really nothing else on the internet that, that represents that team graphically or visually, like then I really want to get it up there and I'll find, I'll find what the story is, even if it's just very brief and sort of, you know, abbreviated, so, so that's the biggest thing. You know, one of the sad, one of the sadder elements of, I think of sort of modern sports is the demise of the souvenir program. <laughs> you know, is you, you go to a, yeah. you know, game now, they really don't sell them anymore. Or, or if you do, it's like a single sheet of paper that's basically like a roster on one side and a picture of a cheerleader on the other. And, and I think part of that, again, you know, obviously part of that's the internet, but part of that is also, again, that influence of minor league sports r- rising into all levels of sports, which is like that the notion of who wins or loses the game that you attend isn't that important, you know, unless it's a playoff game. So it used to be people wanted a book that told them all about the biographies and the lives of the players and their statistics and where they came from and how they were acquired. But that's not really what the experience of going to a game is about these days. And that information is available on your phone. But it also means that, you know, the teams that come and go now in the past 10 years, sort of counterintuitively, it's harder to find information about them in the digital age than it was in the print age. Like the league that I worked for, uh, women's professional soccer, I worked all three years. The league was in business from 2009 to 2011. It was a nationwide league. It had some really big investors like AEG Entertainment that owns the Los Angeles Galaxy. You can't find the attendance figures for that league. 
because the pages that they used to be on online have sort of expired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. so, a lot of you know, you can do a sort of difficult hunt through like the Wayback Machine, but it'd be easier for me to find information about that league from the 1960s or 1970s than it is from the 2010s or 15s because so much of this digital information is like available to you in the moment but there's no there's no effort to save it like when it's gone it's gone sort of like memory hold so it's interesting it's harder to it's, it's harder to find stuff about the new teams and the old teams in a lot of cases that's interesting that you mentioned that because now that I think about it, yeah, you, if you want to go back and look up box scores from the World Football League, you, there's no shortage of news. I mean, it takes a little bit of doing, but you can go through old newspapers that are on that have been scanned in online and look all that stuff up. But yeah, it didn't, it didn't occur to me that after a certain point, they stopped reporting those to newspapers. We don't really have newspapers anymore. So it's yeah. kind of like music. Stuff just disappears sometimes, kids, and you never see it again. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. So World Team Tennis. You uh, are the only person to ever have a, a guest blog on old school shirts, and not that, that averse to them, certainly. I mean, if people think they could do You were the first one to approach me, and I thought, well, you know what you're talking about, so this is a no-brainer. What was your interest in world team tennis, or was it just the fact that it wasn't anywhere online? And Initially, it was that fact that it, was, it wasn't really anywhere online. It, it's since sort of that, that's changed a bit, and there's a great book that came out about the league last year by a guy named Stephen Blush a real, you know, true hardcover book full of color photos, but it's a really interesting league because it was, um, it came, it came about in the 1974 in this era when like all sorts of crazy startup leagues were popping up. So the world hockey association, the world football league, world team tennis, North American soccer league was about to sign Pele and bring him to New York. And so not only were leagues popping up everywhere, but they're popping up with these massive ambitions. You know, they were booking the biggest arenas and the biggest stadiums that they could find. So world team tennis, the idea was basically to take the sport. So as, as Billie Jean King, who was the front woman for it said out of the country clubs and into the arenas. And the idea was to get rid of this notion of sort of these polite white gloved crowds that would follow the umpire's instructions and be silent during service and, you know, sort of do a golf clap at the end of the point and put it into an arena where you'd be pouring, you know, bud heavy on tap and people could scream in the middle of, of games and start the wave and have mascots and all this stuff. It was co-ed teams, which had really never been a sport that tried to be a co-ed professional sport. It attracted some really fascinating people to it. You know, John Lucas, who had been like the number one draft pick in the NBA and 1976 for the Houston Rockets would spend his off seasons playing world team tennis because he was the second best African-American tennis player in the world after Arthur Ashe. And so that's what he would do in the off season. Hmm. Um, Renee Richards, who was a trans woman who had been banned from the tennis establishment played in the league, which was very controversial at the time. And she was actually John Lucas's mixed doubles partner. Um, You had huge stars like Chris Everett and Jimmy Connors that were playing in the league. Um, And it was also this sort of first experience of sports ownership for some really iconic sports guys. So you had Jerry Buss in LA who went on to, you know, own the Showtime Lakers in the eighties. And then out here where I'm from, um, it was Robert Kraft's first team was owning the Boston team in world team tennis. And actually the, the final games ever played were the championship in 1978 between Robert Kraft's Boston lobsters and Jerry Buss's Los Angeles strings with, um, Martina Navratilova on the lobsters and Chris Everett on the 
strengths. So you had all these fascinating personalities, but they'd be playing in front of, you know, 600 people, 800 people in like, you know, in, in some cases in the Louisiana Superdome that had 660,000 <laughs> seats. So, um, you know, it was again, a sort of a case of sort of like giving people too much of what they wanted. Like, it's awesome to see Billie Jean King come to your town in the 1970s when there's not that much to do <laughs> compared to today. Yeah. But having Billie Jean King come to your town 22 nights a summer is maybe more than you need. And that's what those owners found out pretty quickly is they didn't, they didn't need that. And actually that league still exists today, a, a newer version of the league, but now they only play like, you know, maybe four or five games in a city over the course of two weeks because they know there's so much thing is so much is too much of a good thing. With the world team tennis, it's uh, related to some of the other leagues we discussed because it's all coming from a, a same group of, of knuckleheads. And I say that fondly in a way. Gary Davidson, Don Regan, and I can't remember the third fellow was always mixed up in these things. Dennis Murphy. Dennis Murphy. Right, right. Those yeah. those three guys. Davidson isn't really involved in world team tennis. It's Murphy and Regan, right? Is that? I think, I think Davidson might have had a franchise early and he immediately was allowed to sell it. To cash out. <laughs> yeah. Big without shock. ever being involved. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of inside dealing among those guys. Right. Um, so when so when it comes to defunct leagues, they're kind of the I guess the center of the ancient universe of rebel leagues because, you know, they're behind the ABA, they're behind the World Hockey Association, the World Football League. So are you much of a student of them or is that kind of before your time? I know you have a lot of stuff on the site about them, but I mean, it, before it was certainly before my time in terms of my actual lifespan. <laughs> yeah. But um y- you know, they they're the they're the the starting point of a lot of great stories. So yeah, I think for sure. people who sort of have this bug of being interested in things of sort of teams of teams of that have gone away. If they're really nerdy about it, they all know those guys yeah. and they know how many leagues they were involved with and they know that they were hucksters and that, you know, that was my next question. You know, they, they, you know, my experience of minor league sports is that the teams are generally bought either as a toy or as a stock. We've heard the toy analogy a lot. You know, a lot of bit, a lot of owners come to town and they proudly they proudly say like, "I'm going to run this as a business." In the past, it's been a hobby or a toy. Well, you know, that's great. I'm not sure why they think that that's going to play with fans. Like, fans usually want their team to be an escape from the world of dollars and cents in business. So, like, having an owner come to town and tell you the minor league team is going to be run like a business now. I understand why owners say that, but I actually don't think it plays into the fantasy of why people like these teams to arrive. I don't think it's sending the message that they want it to send, but they are right that a lot of people do buy them as toys. So, you know, they love the sport growing up. There's a million guys who are like, I loved watching Mickey Mantle when I was a kid in New Jersey in the fifties. And now I have three minor league baseball teams. There's a lot of guys like that. When I worked in women's soccer, the common denominator among those owners in that era was almost all of them had daughters who played soccer ah. who were very serious about it. Interesting. Um, but daughters grow up. It's not always good news for the long-term, you know, long-term outlook for some of those teams. So there are certainly a lot of people who buy them as toys. And then I think there's a lot of people who buy them as stocks and it's basically a speculation and it's a sort of greater fool theory idea, <laughs> which is like, I bought it for $5 million. I understand it might lose some money, but I think in a couple of years, I'm going to sell it for $10 million. When you look at a sport like arena football, 
in in the mid '90s, you could buy an arena football team for half a million dollars. In 2004 or five, it would cost you 18 million dollars. But by 2008, the league was bankrupt, and when they started up a couple years later, they gave a team for the band to the band Kiss for free. <laughs> you know, in the desperate hope that maybe that would like re-inject some sort of pop culture energy into this fading sport and brand. And it didn't, but you know, actually the, one of the last guys to buy into arena football was a novice sports owner in Tampa Bay. And he spent $18 million to buy the Tampa Bay team in arena football, which had been a really good team. And he later filed a suit saying, this is basically a Ponzi scheme. Like this is, you know, there's no real business here. It's just this sort of hyping of, of essentially sort of stock of a game and trying to raise the valuations of ex- the, the whole business is essentially split the splitting of franchise fees among the existing owners. Yeah. Um, and who then would lose incredible amounts of money each year actually playing the game. So there is that a- aspect to it too. And, you know, there are people who make money that way. And I think like the guys you mentioned, you know, some of them probably got out of some of those leagues with some money because they do oh, things like for sure. take a franchise as a founder's fee. Yeah. Like I started this league. I wrote up the articles on the corporation. I'm going to take the New York City franchise as my payment and then I'm going to sell it before it ever plays a down. And then they walk out with that money. So there's plenty of guys who've done stuff like that. And I think a lot of the people who've made money in these sports and sometimes not always nefariously, They've made money by the by selling the teams, not by running the teams. You work oh, incredibly sure. hard in in double A baseball to turn a very small profit. I think yeah. the thing too with two thoughts on that is one thing we always come back to with our website and the podcast and so forth. And kind of my thoughts on it is, and I've been on local radio shows to talk about defunct leagues. There's always this thing in the popular sports culture to look upon these leagues is very laughable and you know it's a and then they are there's some like you said there's some outrageous stories out there certainly but what i think people seem to forget and the thing that always i find compelling about these leagues is that the guys that played in them especially like the world football league and usfl most of these guys played because they wanted to play and there was nowhere else to play there are only so many jobs in professional football and professional hockey and things like that. And while the owners might have been nefarious and laughable and shady, I there's very few. There were a couple players that you know, a couple went nuts, pulled guns on coaches in the USFL. You know, there's those stories. But um, for the most part, you know, these players really love playing the game, and I think it's also a compelling, uh, you know, idea that people seem to miss when they look at the take the big picture view and see how, like you said, you know, these were Ponzi schemes and you know, uh, quick profit attempts by a lot of people yeah and again those are only the um the most outlandish stories right yeah like like, it's a super hard business it's really really hard and a lot of these people are trying to make money being a tenant in someone else's building which is incredibly hard to do like when you don't control like the food and beverage and the parking and those sort of revenue streams so you know most owners are are well-intentioned and smart and hardworking, and they have really hardworking staffs and it's just really hard. And then for the players, it's the same thing. You know, it like you say, a lot of these things are love of the game kind of situations, or sometimes worse. You know, like you know, take the Negro Leagues. Like that, those players were there because they couldn't play in yeah. the leagues that they should have played in. So, but one of the things that's cool is like a lot of a lot of these leagues really have developed like incredible players that wouldn't have gotten a chance otherwise. You know, you take the sport like you know arena football. 
is the reason Kurt Warner is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He never would have made it out of an NFL training camp if he hadn't had a couple years to shine in a sport like arena football, making, you know, $25,000 or whatever he was making to do that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it, and, and every city has their great players that came out of it in Cincinnati. You know, the last year of the Stingers of the World Hockey Association oh, yeah. they had an 18-year-old eight, Mark Messier yep. um, played for that team. Oh, Michael, and, you, great goalie. Yeah, of course, now a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Uh, I think, too, we're kind of past that point now where we'll ever see that kind of thing ever again as far as, you know, these kind of charlatans and hucksters because the established sports, I don't think any of the four, well, five major sports, soccer's a little different because the leagues are kind of related in that hierarchy they have of the soccer tier in this country. The other four sports, I don't think will ever be penetrated by a rebel, a professional rebel league ever again. There's just, it's just too much, too costly. And the niche part of those sports, particularly indoor soccer and indoor football, have kind of retreated back, I think, and see if you agree with this, to a point where it is more manageable. The major arena soccer league, they draw four or 5,000 fans a game, but they're not in these huge arenas. They're not paying guys, you know, millions of dollars. And same thing with indoor football and the indoor football league. People who like the sport can go to it. It's not in these super huge arenas. Oh, they're playing in some big buildings, but they're not paying guys millions of dollars and having all these expenses. Yeah, I mean, I think the wealth inequality sort of matches the broader society, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, got, for sure. You've got the big teams are bigger than they've ever been, and the small teams are getting smaller. You know, they're getting squeezed just like their fans are getting squeezed in a lot of cases. But you, I 100% agree with you, and I think – but the fascinating thing is people will never will never stop trying. And and one of the, yeah. the things that's interesting is like like the example I give you is spring football. So people are it's like the white whale. Uh, it's like people are obsessed <laughs> with making a spring pro football league work. Yeah. And, and it all goes back to the United States Football League of the 80s. And you mentioned John Bassett. You yep. know, he owned the Tampa Bay team with Burt Reynolds as his co-owner. And um, you know, the USFL from 1983 to 85, really did some damage to the NFL. I mean, they signed three straight Heisman Trophy winners. They lured away future Hall of Famers like Steve Young in the NFL draft. They dra- they they pulled huge stars out of the NFL in free agency. But at the time, you know, the concept of the USFL was you have the Super Bowl, and then you have nothing until the summer, and then there's just baseball which is big, but it's the only thing for the media to show on TV. They saw that cable TV and ESPN was coming along, and there wasn't much besides baseball happening in those months. And um, and then football didn't start up again until September. And so they viewed themselves as filling that gap and that there was an insatiable uh, American thirst for pro football. And people, a lot of media at the time scoffed at that idea. But they were right. There is an insatiable American thirst for pro football. Look at the society that we live in today. It's yeah. all football all the time. But the difference between, first of all, that failed, even though it was super compelling and entertaining and amazing players played there, the USFL failed. But people who want to do that again today, and there's, you know, you have the XFL and you have the Alliance of American Football and people who've tried it very recently and are, you know, the, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is supposedly trying to launch the XFL for a third time in the next couple of years. The thing that I think is missed there is like there was no fantasy football in the early 1980s. The NFL draft wasn't even on television. Hmm, yeah. The NFL draft itself as a standalone business today would be bigger than any 
spring football league as a business could hope to be split off from the whole rest of the NFL. Like, so all of those things, you know, there is no gap to fill. There, there is a, there's NFL has completely like embedded itself in every aspect of society. So you just don't need that, but there's still people who are, who are just totally intoxicated by the dream and they'll keep throwing millions of dollars at it. Well, it's funny you say that because I'm a, I'm a big supporter of spring football because and here's why. And I always say this. It, it is ridiculous to me that people would rather sit and watch a guy stand at a podium and read names every 20 minutes than watch an actual football game. It's insane to me. And the draft was this year was in Cleveland, my hometown. They did a great job. Uh, my daughter works at the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was very oh, cool. big for them. It brought a lot of people into the building. It was great for Cleveland. All that was great. But still, I'm like, but you would ra- once the Browns make their pick, I'm done. And then the first, I'll read the rest in the paper tomorrow. I don't care. It's just, it's just crazy to me that people care about the draft when a lot of these guys aren't going to make a team to begin with. You know, only most of the top players might. But once you get into the fourth and fifth and sixth rounds, you don't know if these guys are going to make the team, for Christ's sake. And But people would rather watch that than watch an actual football game. Blows my mind. <laughs> are the Browns your team, Pia? Yes. So do you remember how you felt when they drafted Baker Mayfield? Yeah, but I wasn't... Was that exciting? It was exciting, but but again, remember, it's the Cleveland Browns. You, If you go look on the internet, remember that the, there's that jersey that they hung in the sports shop downtown of all the quarterbacks yep. that were on it. So no, it wasn't that exciting because he was just another guy that they were going to throw in there and he'd be done in 18 months. So, I mean, on paper, I could see... I'm trying to think, like, as a Browns fan... Would you rather watch... A game at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon between the Sacramento Surge and the Raleigh Durham Skyhawks, then watch Baker Mayfield get drafted by your team. Absolutely, this <laughs> because Baker gets he goes up, he holds up the jersey. Done. Who cares? <laughs> it's just that is him. Whether he, then you got to go if he can get signed. What's his month? What's the signing bonus going to be? What's his contract? I don't care. I don't care until August when he's out on the field. And same thing with with preseason football. Who cares? Who the hell cares? Uh, well, somewhere you've somewhere you've just inspired the next private equity guy. I guess to so. Yeah, seventy-five million dollars. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad they finally <laughs> trimmed one of the exhibition games off the schedule because, again, to me, you know, the only preseason game I ever watch is the third game of the season, which traditionally is when they bring out who's probably going to be the starters for the Browns. So I'm a little curious to watch the first quarter, and that's it. It's an exhibition game. I don't care. I'll go watch the CFL. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'll go watch a meaningful game. You know, the, the Toronto versus Saskatchewan, they're in the regular season at that point. That's a meaningful game. <laughs> See, I guess, I guess I'm an odd duck, as they say. So, fun while it lasted. We can find that, of course, anywhere on the World Wide Web, naturally. Do you have any other, like, off... Is, is, do you have a Facebook page for it, or uh, is there a Twitter account? I don't even remember. Um, there is. I, I don't... I never promote them, because, to be honest with you, I've just decided that I'm going to devote all my effort to the sort of old-school website and not do any of the things that everybody tells you you have to do. <laughs> And I've decided I don't need the social media part in my life. Uh, I, between my my family and my work and my my joy of working on the site, I've decided to do the things I like and leave off the promotion and stuff that I I don't enjoy and just sucks up all my time. So if well, I try if I try and do it the right way, well, smart move because after ten years, it's gotten enough traction. You look up most of these teams, you end up on the first page. Yeah. So yeah, if you look up the Indianapolis Racers. Our shirt turns up on the first page, I think. And then so does Fun, fun While It Lasted, the Indianapolis Racers. So, yeah, you, you kind of have that luxury having been at this so long that the Internet's been kind to you and now notes you as a, an expert resource. 
let, let me ask you a question if you're willing to sort of spill the tea a little bit sure. uh, on, uh, on, on your business, but yeah. you guys have an amazing selection of, of, um, shirts from, from teams of the past and, yeah. and I, I enjoy promoting them on the site, but I'm curious for you, how, how do sort of retro team and stadium shirts for you, how do they sell when you compare them against things like, you know, you also have all these amazing sort of old concert venues or radio stations or restaurants. That's a good like question. That. How does sports do for you against the other areas that you guys sort of try to bring back from the past? That's an excellent question because we always have this debate, especially with old school shirts and to a certain extent with Cincy shirts, which is the main site. You know, are we a sports site or are we a retro site? And we are still mostly a sports site, although uh, two of our biggest sellers on old school shirts are an old record label and an old beer a beer from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. And then we have the Sportures. So I would say we're still mostly a sports site, but we have that, unlike some of our competitors, we have that little twist where you can still find, you know, a, an old mall from your town or uh, old fast food restaurants and things like that. So I say mostly sports and a lot of other things where I would say Cincy shirts, off the top of my head, I would say 50-50. It all just depends because we, we have licenses with different people on both sites. So that kind of affects things. We have a Major League Soccer Players Association uh, license. We have uh, license with individual players and things like that. So if, if the Reds are doing well, we sell a lot of baseball stuff. We don't do a lot of defunct stuff. But now come wintertime, Mighty Duck stuff's going to start selling really well. So it just, it just really all depends. I mean, I like the fact that we do both, certainly. Yeah, it's very cool. Get a little, little twist on it. Well, great. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, especially uh, last minute when I needed a last-minute guest. You're kind of the Tony Randall of of uh, Shirts Podcast today. You know, to turn up on Letterman. Oh, it used to be great. Did, whenever they didn't have a guest, he'd, he'd turn up. There was one episode where uh, they were, I guess it was this, he lived in New York. He lived right around the corner from the studio. So it was very easy for him to come in if someone dropped out. And one time they made a joke of it by someone dropped out, but then turned out they could come back. And then Tony shows up and they're like, oh, sorry, Tony. He actually ended up showing up and he had this dejected look on his face and he walks down the hall real sad. He wasn't going to be on the show, but... Anyway, I digress. We're to the part of the show where the guest, we let the guest pick the coupon code, which is good on both sites for the next week. So folks can take 20% off their entire t-shirt order, uh, either edsonzshirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com. So, Andy Crossley, what would you like the coupon code to be? It can be one word. It can be a series of words. It can be whatever you like it to be. What would you like the coupon code to be? Oh, gosh. It could be the obvious. I guess I'll go with Fun While It Lasted, if, I, if that's not too long. Nope, not at all. Perfect. All right, folks, use Fun While It Lasted to take 20% off your CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order little hack. You can use it once at each site. So if you find stuff you like, you can, you can go there. And anything else you wanted to add, Andy? No, thanks for having me, P.F. I enjoyed it. Great, man. Good talking to you. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Cheers. Andy Crossley, what a fascinating discussion. Now, of course, there's other folks we know that kind of ply the same waters. Our own Jim Farmer at, at the OTR store works at the Reds Baseball Hall of Fame. And Tim Hanlon 
Good Seat Still Available podcast. He is also an affiliate of Old School Shirts. I've had him on my own podcast. We have not spoken to him on the Cincy Shirts podcast. Tim and I are much more similar. We're about the same age. We arrived at the interest in defunct leagues and teams kind of the same way. We kind of follow the same stories. We're big fans of the kind of World Football League, WHA, ABA arm of defunct sports leagues and teams. Interesting to get Andy's view. Andy, it's, I was surprised to, to learn that even though we wrote a blog post for us about World Team Tennis, not a big tennis fan, just interested in the story, which I thought was just fascinating, and also interested to hear kind of how he came to it through minor league teams, and of course minor league teams come and go in this country all the time, though the one playing near my dad down there in Kissimmee, the Florida Fire Frogs just went out of business a year ago, and they're tearing down the stadium, putting up a soccer field, how about that, there should be a song about that, wasn't there? Back in the 70s, tear it all down and put up a soccer stadium. All right, so if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email podcast at cincyshirts.com and put podcast guest in the subject line and then maybe give us a few sentences about why you think that person would be a good guest on the show. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already, check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives from baseball great Johnny Bench to actors Amy Yazbeck, John Keyswetter. We've got all kinds of Jeff Ruby. Jeff Ruby is a great episode. Uh, they're all great. Go back and listen to them one by one. Cherry pick if you like, but you, you, you'd be good to, uh, to listen to them all. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They're from Philadelphia. Find their music in Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music. You can find those guys. So they're very talented. And you can find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at where? Well, we just discussed it earlier, oldschoolshirts.com. Again, lots of defunct sports teams, mostly defunct sports teams, but also we have old malls, old restaurants, TV personalities, all kinds of stuff. It's like Cincy shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is fun while it lasted. Simple as that. You can use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Here's a hack. Use it once at each site. How about that? And you can also use it at our stores in uh, over the Rhine and Hyde Park. Simply tell them you want to use the podcast code fun while it lasted. And that's good until the next episode drops. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.